Welcome back to the program. Fifty years ago, the nation passed the Civil Rights Act. Six years ago, we elected an African American as President of the United States. Yet, contrary to the hopes of many, we still do not live in a post-racial society. While gay rights and gay marriage are often seen as the civil rights issue of our time, and yes, remarkable progress has been made, we are also far from a post-gay or post-gender world. The reality is, as race has taught us, that too much assimilation and tolerance are potential traps that can wipe out identity and water down the very differences that have been fought for. In short, is the battle for civil rights about viva la difference or about homogenization? We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Susanna Walters. Susanna has written and lectured extensively on sexuality, popular culture, and feminism, and is currently the Director of Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies and Professor of Sociology at Northeastern University. She's the author of several previous books. Her latest is The Tolerance Trap, How God, Genes, and Good Intentions Are Sabotaging Gay Equality. Susanna Walters, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. One of the things that you point out is that acceptance and tolerance is really not the same as full inclusion, and we get trapped into thinking that it is. Let's talk about that first. Well, I mean, let me just say, of course, that tolerance is certainly better than outright hatred. (laughs) (laughs) I will, you know, I will take, uh, you know, a little tolerance over gay bashing any day. So it, you know, it's it, it is it is a it is a better place to be in than than a wholly intolerant world in that sense. But when we think about the word for a minute and and think about what tolerance is, you know, it's a bit more troublesome. I mean, we tolerate that which we really don't embrace and don't love. We talk about tolerating a boring meeting, tolerating, you know, uh, going to visit in-laws that are crazy, you know, tolerating, uh, you know, um, a, a, a movie that you don't like. We don't talk about tolerating wonderful sex, tolerating a sunny day, tolerating a wonderful friendship you have. So toleration and tolerance is really about, you know, accepting something that you could do without, that you'd rather do without. So in, it, it's a very low bar to set when we're thinking about the the questions of real and robust inclusion of a minority group into full citizenship. It's just an incredibly low bar. And I think it's a low bar that also stops us from reaching for a more vivid kind of um, inclusion and, and uh, citizenship. Uh, we, you know, we say, oh, we've got tolerance. We pat ourselves on the back. You know, that's better than intolerance. And we, and we say the movement's over. We're, you know, and, and I, so I think it actively, it's not just that it, that it's a low bar. It actively disenables the potential for imagining, uh, a broader kind, a deeper and broader kind of inclusion. Do we first need to understand, even if we accept tolerance as a step along the road, do we need to understand what that full inclusion looks like, what the goal ultimately needs to be? Absolutely. But, you know, I think one of the things that's true about, uh, about full inclusion is that we can't really know what it looks like in advance. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine, you know, what would a world look like that really wasn't racist? You know, what would a world look like that really wasn't uh, misogynist? Um, we don't know the answers to that, but we do know um, from long, you know, social movements and through history, we do know that, that legal forms of legal discrimination need to be removed. There's no question about that. 
Um, you know, and that's certainly what's happening with some of the marriage movement. Uh, you know, we need to pass and, uh, you know, all of those things need to happen to remove formal discrimination. But we can't mistake the removal of formal discrimination for full citizenship and what, what some of us call social belonging. It's just not the same thing. That's a little harder to pin down, but you sort of, you, you know it when you're in it to really feel a part of a society. And I think part of that is, you know, when we, when we get beyond, we'll know, we'll know we're at that new place when we're not asking about acceptance and tolerance. I mean, you, don't, you can only accept and tolerate that which is already presumed to be outside the norm. Tolerance is often seen as a kind of step on the road to homogenization, as opposed to celebrating difference itself. Talk about that. Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, that's what I mean when I say tolerance sort of disenables um, the more, a more robust kind of integration and inclusion. Uh, you know, I think tolerance is, you know, part of what happens with tolerance, and we're seeing it now, I think, very much with um, the way the, the gay marriage movement has been so embraced. You know, tolerance is the easy, the easy stuff. And tolerance is often dependent on looking just like, like the norm. So we'll, in other words, you know, we, straight society, will tolerate gay people into our club as long as they look and act as much like us as possible. Right? So they want to get married. Good. We like that. Marriage is just, we love marriage. It's a, you know, cornerstone of American culture. Blah, blah, blah. You know, we can get behind that. Um, you know, it's no accident that marriage becomes uh, the, the route towards a more tolerant society because marriage is easy. We're not talking about really, you know, messing with conceptions of gender. We're not talking about messing with conceptions of sexuality. And in fact, a lot of the rhetoric that, that the gay rights movement uses around marriage equality is, you know, we're just like you. We just want everything you want. We just want to raise our kids and, you know, uh, and, and go to PTA meetings, etc. Not that there's anything wrong with that in the words of Seinfeld, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but, you know, the um, sexual identities and desires and ways of being are various. They're not just oriented towards being the same as heterosexuals. You know, and part of my argument is that we all lose in that march towards sameness, gay and straight alike. I mean, what is so, you know, is sort of the dream of the United States and what has been, uh, you know, underlying some of, uh, you know, what, what brought immigrants here, my grandparents, uh, you know, um, all kinds of, uh, you know, immigrants all over the history of this country has been this, you know, this sort of celebration of difference, um, this, this celebration of what different groups can bring to this thing, this nation, this party, you know. And if you always talk about acceptance and tolerance and assimilation, you lose some of that. All of us lose. Is this a particularly American phenomenon? We have a tendency and a habit to think about America, and we've seen a similar thing play out with respect to, to the civil rights movement, as a melting pot, that homogenizing and all being the same seems to be some kind of a goal as opposed to celebrating difference. And, and that seems to be uniquely American in so many respects. Well, I think it is. You know, I think, I mean, we, we, are, we like to pat ourselves on the back a lot 
uh, as a nation and, and, you know, say, boy, you know, aren't we the wonderful melting pot? But I think that the notion of that, of that melting pot is often dependent on a kind of assimilation, you're right, and a kind of homogenization. Um, and I think what goes along with that, which is also, uh, I think, quite uniquely American, is what people might call the progress narrative, this idea, and you started out your introduction by talking about this, this idea that, you know, we're in this post-racial area, era, or we're in a post-gay era. You know, we've got a black president, it's post-racial. We've conquered that problem, all done. You know, women now, uh, you know, are, are, it's legally, you know, it's illegal to discriminate on the basis of gender. Okay, you know, feminism is a done deal. Um, you know, now they're, they're gay people on television and gay marriage happening. Oh, you know, uh, homophobia is vanquished. When, and, you know, we tend to, to um, you know, make those progress narratives in this country very quickly. Uh, and part of what that does, of course, is to actually undermine um, the ability to reach those end goals. Uh, that if you say prematurely it's over, you know, it's post-racial, et cetera, it disenables us um, from actually, you know, getting to that place, to doing that hard work of really struggling with racism, doing that hard work of really struggling with um, sexism and homophobia. Uh, we've got a long way to go. And saying that we're over, uh, which I often hear now, particularly with the marriage victories, people say, well, you know, we've got gay people coming, gay football players and gay marriage in the heartland. And, uh, you know, it's all over. And you want to say, really? You know, it's not all over. And that's part of what I think I'm trying to do in this book is to say, I want to celebrate these victories, too. I, I couldn't be happier about these victories. But, boy, they are not signs of a revolution com completed. They are signs of a revolution still, still in progress. You touched on something that I think lies at, at the heart of this, which is this notion of hard work. Because revolutionary movements in their early stages are exciting, they're fun, they're energetic. The reality is that once they get to a certain point in any kind of a social movement, they become about the drudgery of hard work, of, of moving progress forward, which is not something people love to embrace. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's true everywhere. And that's not, by the way, uniquely American, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that's been the, the, you know, what has tripped up social movements for so long. But I think part of our problem, that something that is particular to the gay movement right now, is the way we seem to have put all our eggs in one basket, and that basket is marriage equality. And, uh, you know, to the extent that we do that, I think we really undercut the potential for that real hard work and that larger social transformation to take place. I mean, let me tell you, no social movement worth its salt has so banked its future and its present, and, it, you know, it banked its, its very identity on one civil right. It's an important civil right. I would be the, you know, the last person to chat. I mean, it is absolutely critical, of course, like other civil rights are. But, you know, the, the civil rights movement, uh, didn't bank everything on, um, you know, on voting rights. The women's movement didn't bank everything on abortion rights. It had a huge range of issues, ranging from violence against women to pay equity to flexi time in the workplace, all of that. So, you know, one of the things that's worrisome to me now is the extent to which gay marriage and gay rights have become synonymous. I mean, all you have to do is Google, and you put in gay rights, and you're going to get gay marriage articles coming up. That's what you'll get. And every speech, every pundit makes, every poll that's taken, gay marriage is 
you know, the uh, gay rights become subsumed into gay marriage. And, you know, it's, it, they're, they're obviously a broader range of issues um, around sexual freedom, gender freedom. Uh, we haven't even passed the Employment Non-Discrimination Act, uh, much less dealt with questions of uh, gay bashing, questions of the treatment of trans people and trans rights. I mean, we haven't dealt with any of that in any substantive way. So I, I find the way in which marriage has come to be the sign of all things gay and all things gay rights <laughs> really um, a very worrisome trend. How has that happened, in your view? Why has it happened? Oh, yeah, beats the hell out of me. I mean, I think it's happened for some very practical reasons about how social movements, you know, how did, you know, how social movements work and how the particular court cases come up, particular activists, and there's, you know, there's been some very good work written on the history of that and how that's played out. But I also think it's happened because it's easy and it fits into the tolerance uh, motif very well. I mean, straight people you know, straight couples in particular can say, pat themselves on the back and say, we are so anti-homophobic. We are so pro-gay rights. We want to get married. We love marriage. We just want to let our gay brethren into this wonderful circle of love. You know, it can be, you know, put into the language of love, into the language of family, which is a very appealing language. Um, you know, and I mean, you'll see celebrities coming out every minute to talk about how much they support gay marriage, but you know, they're not out there talking about how much they support trans rights or how much they support, um, you know, the rights of, of the, the, you know, the problems and, and want to deal with the problems of the disproportionate numbers of uh, gay youth on the streets that are homeless. So I think it's a very easy kind of Thing for straight folks to get behind because, number one, it's just so obvious as a civil right, but also because it's wrapped in a whole ideology of love and family. And, you know, so, so everyone can say, you know, love, you know, love, love knows no gender. Love, you know, love wins out. Um, all people, you know, gay people want to do is, is, you know, get married and, and uh, you know, enter into that institution. And so I think it's become the easy way for straight supporters and straight allies to um, to latch on to gay rights. And in that sense, it can be a very positive force in that it is a step in, in the right direction and a very positive one because of the language in which it's couched. The question is whether the movement continues or doesn't continue from this point forward. That's a very good point. Yeah, look, I think there are positive, uh, I mean, besides the fact that this is positive in the sense of gaining a civil right you've been denied, you know, it is, there is a potential, there is no question, there is a potential with, with what is happening now across the country with, the, with um, uh, gay marriage. There is a potential that it really can change consciousness, that people can get rid of their stereotypes and preconceptions. Now, there's also simultaneously a danger that people will do that to the extent that those gay people are the same as them. In other words, there is a potential that homophobia can harden in new ways so that the good gay people are those marrying gays. Those are the gays we want to let in into our family, you know, the ones who want what we want, the ones who look like we look. 
and that that you know gays who don't live in marital institutions who want to actually forge different ways of making family of intimacy of sexuality become pushed further and further out of um, the public gaze and out of the public eye and, and out of public acceptance and there is that danger that there become a sort of dividing line between acceptable tolerated gays the married ones and unacceptable bad gays who have ideas about sexual freedom and non-monogamy and are critical of the marriage institution and so on. And I, I worry about that danger as well. It reflects, one, some of the dangers we've seen in the black community and acceptance of, of blacks on the one hand, but what it also does is it, it seems to be reflective in some ways of divisions within the gay community among those that that want to push forward on some of these issues you're talking about and those that on the one hand want to be accepted and yet at the same time blend in be homogenized and that seems to be a significant part of the gay population yes i think you're right i mean look one of the things that's true is that the you know the gay community to the any extent that there is a single one is as various and um, contentious and comes from these different, you know, sort of political ideologies and so on as any social group. So, um, you know, there are, there is wide debate. What is true is that mostly I think what straight people read in the mainstream media, what straight people see in television and film and so on, it would lead them to believe that all gay people want is to get married that all gay people want is to be tolerated, that all gay people want is to be, you know, just left alone to, you know, go to their PTA meetings and put up their white picket fences. And while that is true for a portion of the gay population, that absolutely, there's a robust and has been a robust debate within the gay movement about priorities, about politics, about ideology, about how, you know, what is the future of gay rights and how do we want to think about it? And it's true that much of that debate doesn't reach the public. I mean, I'll tell you, I often have the experience, you know, even when I'm teaching sort of savvy graduate students and undergraduate students, and, you know, I'll, I'll make a critique of marriage, and they'll look at me and say, Professor Walters, we don't understand, we thought you were gay. You know, they don't get how a gay person could be critical of that institution and critical of marriage and not just getting behind uh, this 100%. And so, because they've come to believe that, you know, what all gay people want and think is the highest priority for the movement is marriage rights or military access, that these have been the major issues, and that all kinds of other issues exist, that there's a feminist critique of marriage and all of the history of that, you know, is often news to, I think, the mainstream public because they just don't see it. Um, and unfortunately, there are not enough enough radio shows like yours that you know are are speaking about um, the the more complex or contentious kinds of arguments that are within the movement. The other overlay to all of this is generational change and generational acceptance, and even coming back to that word of tolerance. And how generational change and generational acceptance will have an impact on those seeking to, to continue the movement? It's a very good question. I mean, the generational stuff is, is you know, is phenomenal. There is no question about it. Um, you know, when it comes to, again, when it comes to particular issues like gay marriage, the, the generational divide is quite, is quite dramatic in terms of, um, uh, of that issue. What we don't know 
really, I think, is how significant the generational divide is around broader questions of gender difference, of um, not just tolerance and acceptance, but broader and deeper issues of challenging gender norms and gender binaries uh, and, you know, having a, a broader conception of sexuality and so on. I think there's some of that, but we just can't know that in advance. I mean, I have to tell you, I find you know, amongst young, I mean, I deal with undergraduate young, you know, young mm-hmm. folks, and I find some of them as invested in these ideas of tolerance and acceptance as um, some of their older, um, you know, their parents. <laughs> you know, that the language, the language of tolerance, I think, is not a language that is restricted um, to an older generation. I think this, you know, this younger generation thinks of themselves, uh, you know, often as we're more tolerant and accepting than our parents, which may be true. What they then don't do is think, but, but is tolerance and acceptance as far as we can go? You know, and and, and the, the question that, you know, you always have to ask around tolerance and acceptance is, who are you to tolerate me? Right? Someone's doing the tolerating. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's the part um, that I think is hard. When we talk about hard work, that's the harder work to really say, what does it mean to say one tolerates someone else? Where it gets complicated with respect to the generational issue is that so much of this younger, this millennial generation, in addition to being tolerant, as you say, is also about fitting in for them. And and that just adds to this sense of homogenization. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I have a a 19-year-old daughter, and I'll tell you, you know, I mean, she has, she, she's straight. She has a lot of gay friends. And, you know, when I look at sort of their kind of political activism and, and goals, you know, they're much because of the world they live in now. I mean, they're, you know, they're talking about gay marriage is all that they can talk about, you know. Um, they want to fit in. They want to be assimilated. They want just to be tolerated. And ex- I mean, I'm not seen among her friends in particular uh, that sort of radical, or pushing back kind of sense of, of gay youth that um, certainly was part of my own experience. Now, that being said, you know, there, there are all kinds of, um, you know, radical gay youth groups um, and older groups uh, all around the country doing all kinds of stuff. But there, you know, I think when the language of tolerance and acceptance becomes our national norm and when marriage becomes then attached to that, as our national goal for a movement, it's really hard to, you know, to, to, to have a deeper and broader and, and, yes, sort of more radical kind of political ethos in the nation around gay rights. It's there. It just doesn't get the kind of public attention or traction in a world in which tolerance seems like both the, you know, the, the beginning and the end of gay rights. Susanna Walters, her book is The Tolerance Trap, How God, Genes, and Good Intentions Are Sabotaging Gay Equality. Susanna, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. I thank you. It was delightful. Thanks. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.